This is Finding Hidden Treasure. A new feature that we are going to be having on Finding Hidden Treasure is a more conversational aspect. Family members, friends, those who are kind enough to allow me to interview them. And we are going to premiere with my son, Zach, and myself having a conversation. Hello, Zach. Hello. So what do you have for me? So I uh, had a question that I wanted to ask you, get your take on. Uh, something that I've noticed with a lot of people, especially in my generation, uh, there's a lot of feelings of, uh, I don't know how to say it other than maybe inadequacy for a lot of people that I talk to, their jobs aren't quite what they were hoping they were. Oftentimes they're like completely crippled by student debt. So I wanted to get your take for, uh, people in my generation who kind of have this disconnect, who they are and, uh, where they wanted to be. What would you say to kind of help them in that identity struggle? Okay. One of the things that your generation as a whole doesn't have that let's say my generation or generations before us did have is that they had a culture that was at least honoring of Christian principle, uh, Christian understanding, biblical uh, understanding and being informed by it. Mm. And I think that that helped in terms of shaping one's identity, that one would know that life wasn't just merely the amount of work you do, your career, even your family, that there is something more to it. In your generation, as in every generation, there is the need for hope. There's also a need to understand who they are, their identity. I know that, for example, a lot of people in my generation, the baby boomer generation, there's been a sense of finding identity in any number of things. It could be work, as in workaholism. It could be people who are extreme sports fanatics, and they identify themselves with their most favorite college or professional team. Any number of things that people will find their identity in. However, Scripture is, I think, pretty clear that we need to find our identity in Christ. Uh, if you understand who we are made in the image of God, until we have that sense of our identity in Christ, there will always be something lacking. In your generation, they don't have, I'll just say the artificial props that perhaps my generation did. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, it's more the sense of, let's take away the artificial props. Who are you really? And with all the pressures that your generation faces, there are so many things that in your generation were pre-structured, not really, in my opinion, not allowing people in your generation to grow up with a lot of boredom time. And boredom isn't necessarily a virtue, but I think it is helpful in developing one sense of who am I, just having the time to reflect on who you are. Also, living in an always connected age. Your mom's in my generation is probably going to be the last generation that has a living memory of what it's like to live without the internet, which is kind of interesting in terms of the way history goes, but it also has uh, not only just the history of technology that's behind it, but also the way that we treat each other. Decades ago, it was thought the machines would give us only a 15-hour work week, and now we are stuck with 40, 50, 60-hour work weeks. We try to mimic in our lives the machines we carry around with us. So when it comes to identity, I think especially in your generation, they're looking for identity on things such as social media and work. And every generation has to face that. What's going to distract them away from the things that Christ has called them to do? And related to that, I've noticed with a lot of people in my generation, uh, there's a big push moving towards equality, social justice, uh, things that are that are good, things that uh, promote 
equality and value of the individual. Uh, but oftentimes I'm seeing that come from a very humanist perspective. And a lot of times in the process of trying to promote that equality, uh, there's often a lot more harm than good that comes from that. When that sense of equality is, is sort of robbed of its, you say robbed of its Christian value. I think it's a fair statement. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to hear Pastor Matt Chandler at Village Church in uh, Texas, and he was talking about racial reconciliation. One of the things he brought up in the midst of the service was that ours is the first generation, at least in the United States, of Christians who in many ways have divorced the idea of social justice from the preaching of the gospel. Mm. And I've heard a lot of it from people in my generation. It's like, well, don't give that compassionate stuff. Just preach the word. It's like, you're doing that. You're not really being compassionate. What happens is that there is a vacuum that needs to be filled. There does need to be compassion that is being shown to our fellow human beings. We are called uh, the Lord Jesus, for example, in Matthew chapter 25, when he talks about the judgment that happens at the end of the age, talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep are those who are going with them into glory. The goats are the ones who aren't. And the effects of our faith showed up in things such as, did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you help the poor? Did you visit those in prison? And a lot of that sounds like social justice concerns nowadays, because I think in a lot of ways, at least the evangelical church in the United States has separated itself from those. There are others who are taking that over. And unfortunately, as I think you've observed, they are not bringing a Christian dimension to it. And again, remembering that we're designed, being in the image of God, to be doing the things God's called us to do. And when we are, if I can say, doing God things without a God intention, something is going to be lacking. So while I have noticed the the social justice movement, especially within the millennial generation, I see it as something of a reaction to the way that the church in the United States has walked away from it. I would hope that at least for those who are still in my generation and also uh, the millennial generation as well to understand that social justice without a Christ dimension is going to lead in areas that are not helpful. One of the things I've noticed in terms of just social justice are people who have been perhaps quite correctly so being accused of various injustices, uh, I think in the Me Too movement, where there are people who've been accused of sexual harassment, things of that sort. I condemn that as well as anyone else. What I'm seeing with all of this is that there appears to be a lack of forgiveness that happens within movements like this. And again, without a Christ dimension, we're just going to be, as a society, backbiting each other. Things that have happened 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago will always come back. And unless somebody can live a perfect life, not under God, but under a movement that has pulled itself away from Christ, who's going to survive? Who, who can live to that kind of standard? Christianity says no. And there, I think, especially in the millennial generation and the generation that follows, as they see that the social justice movement, that one direction it's going in, is not just condemning evil, but not allowing for forgiveness, the need for the gospel is going to become even more and more clear because people are going to be seeking for that, not only socially, but also inside. I mean, how can somebody live with that much guilt for so long a period of time? Yeah. So in terms of takeaway steps, uh, I guess I'll circle back around to people in my generation again. What are some, uh, maybe some good practices that that we can get into that 
uh, or good action steps that we could take to be able to enact that out and for those that are Christians what's something that we can do there has been said that when preaching happens it should be happening with the whole counsel of God not just part of it not just selective parts I did reference Matthew 25 earlier the scene of what happens at the end of the age when there's a judgment that happens and again the ones that Christ says when you did this for others you did this for me so a reminder of that that especially for my generation we need to make sure that we understand there is the preaching of the gospel. There is that supernatural dimension of what Christ did for us on the cross and his resurrection. It has real effects, very practical effects in our lives, not to separate what is now being called social justice, which I'll be candid kind of bothers me because these are Christian characteristics of caring in virtually every other generation. And now somebody else is taking it over. So to answer your question, Getting back to that, but also getting back to the basics, one of the things I'm really appreciative for is a simple direction. I think it's a simple direction, but it has an incredibly diverse way of being fulfilled. Here's where I'm going with this. I think that the church has been called in what is uh, found in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and you find that there are four key elements that are spoken of. It's basically that the church dedicated itself to the word, which would be the Bible, to prayer, to the sacraments, which I understand as being the Lord's table and baptism, and also fellowship with one another. And I'm not talking about fellowship, about getting together on a Sunday and asking how the Red Wings or the Tigers did the night before. I'm talking about asking questions like, I haven't seen you in a while, Bob or Mary, how is your soul? How are you doing today? So we, I think we have four clear directions to go in especially when it comes to word and prayer, lots of examples, the internet, good heavens, there's so much that's available in terms of very useful videos. And I think videos that are great generationally found that there are a number of millennials who've been putting out some really quality stuff uh, in terms of learning personal devotions, prayer, living a Christian life. I'll be a little old school this way and saying even refamiliarizing yourself, or not you personally, but your generation and my generation too, with things such as catechisms, which kind of fell out of use in, I guess, your mom's and my generation, perhaps seen as being old-fashioned. However, one of the values of catechisms is that it gives you a structured sense of a summary of the faith. So it gives you, uh, to use a more modern term, a meta-narrative of how you can approach the faith. Familiarizing yourself with catechisms, scripture, good heavens, everyone who carries a smartphone, probably has either scripture on it or access to scripture. This is unprecedented. My uh, thought is that especially at this time, this is something that's been passionate for me over the last year or so, and people who've been part of the Restoring the Core webpage as well as Finding Hidden Treasure know that I've had a real passion for helping to build a biblical literacy. I think it's not only just the millennial generation that would need it, it would be mine as well. It's just getting that sense of what does Scripture really say. It's really strange that in a time in which we have more access to Scripture than we've ever had at any point in human history, that it seems, at least in the United States or in the Western context, it's being used as infrequently as it is. It's been said, I believe, one out of five Americans has read the Bible cover to cover at some point in their lives. I have reason to think it's actually more in the order of about 9 to 10% maybe even a little bit lower, for people to take the time to do this. It's, it's a priority. So where I'd go to answer your original question, it's a very long answer to a short question. <laughs> 
to make this a priority. This is what they're designed for, to seek who they are in Christ. And I know this circles way back to the beginning part of our conversation now about that sense of what do you do to, to fulfill that emptiness. If you take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes to the Ephesian church talking about not only the gift of faith that believers have been given, but also the works they've been called to do and called to do ahead of time. This is something from the beginning of creation. Every individual who's in Christ have some set of things they're called to do. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 talks about how the believers are called on a race and that the Lord Jesus is, for lack of a better term, he's the one who fires off the starting gun and he's the finish line. Talks about how, how he's the author and the perfecter, the, the starting and ending, and also the Alpha and Omega. He's referred to that in Revelation. So finding their identity in Christ, because I can guarantee from your generation or the generation that follows you or my generation, that if they're looking for their identity in anything other than Christ, you're going to find life to be empty. You're going to try to fill it with something, and it just won't work. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. Uh, related to, uh, I think it was the, the fourth point you had brought up uh, about uh, fellowshipping. Yes. That's something that I've noticed, especially uh, with a generation that is, in many ways, with a culture that is more connected to each other than we ever have been before and a culture that is also more isolated in that connection than we've ever been before. For the body of believers to be able to step out and to have those conversations and to engage with people and to find out really how they're doing, not just people who uh, are brothers and sisters in the faith, but to also people that are unbelievers, to friends and family that, that don't have that same faith value. To see the value of that connection is very attractive to the outside world. It's something that we really need to be doing. I agree. The Lord Jesus, in 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, somewhere around verses 34 and 35, talks about a new commandment that he's giving to his people, to love one another. It's really a summary of commandments from the Old Testament, which I won't do the Bible study on in the course of our uh, episode. This new commandment to love one another, the Lord Jesus says, that the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So not only is it good for the body of Christ person to person, but it also tells people from the outside world there's something else that's different that's going on here. That's something that I think we kind of neglect as a church, and I'm not talking about my individual congregation, I'm talking about the church in the U.S. particularly, mm -hmm. that we forget that there is a dimension of the unusual when it comes to evangelism. You might say, well, what does that mean? The sense of the supernatural, that it's one thing, for example, in our culture, if, let's say, somebody cuts you off when you're driving, for somebody to maybe give them the finger or swear at them or do something like that. That's, for lack of a better term, that's expected. But when something bad happens, that when somebody returns a blessing instead of a curse, that stands out. The Apostle Peter writes about that. I think it's in First Peter where he talks about that when you're suffering, make sure you suffer for the faith so that when people see your suffering, then you can give them a reason for your belief because they're going to ask you, why are you reacting this way? Mm -hmm. If you're swearing and cursing and going off and going on a huff, that's just what everyone else is doing. If you're returning blessing, that's going to stand out. So when you're having fellowship, genuine fellowship, I think that stands out as well. I think you're right. I know you're right. There's an attractional quality to that. 
I know it pertained to me in my circumstance. A few years before I came to faith, I was uh, living on my own uh, in an apartment sitting nearby here in the Detroit area. And I was riding my bike one summer night, and I happened to see a Christian group of people or me, probably about my age, maybe a little bit younger. And that got my attention. It's like, it genuinely looks like they want to be with each other. Mm-hmm. It's not like some sort of, we're in some families where the only reason they're together is because they had the coincidence of having the same parents, that kind of thing. But these people genuinely cared for each other. And that got my attention. Obviously, it's what, over 35 years later, I'm still thinking about that. I think that's a value that would be particularly helpful for the millennial generation to know that, yes, you are connected digitally, but it's also, in a sense, behind a barrier. When you don't have that face-to-face fellowship, there are certain unpleasantries you don't have to put up with. Maybe there aren't people you want to get along with. Uh, With a more digital approach to social media, you can kind of filter out the people you don't want to deal with, and you can fine-tune your community. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know that we're supposed to fine-tune our community. Christians are called to be countercultural. And please understand, I think digital technology is great. Obviously, we're using it for this podcast, two blogs. I'm definitely not somebody who hates technology. But also keeping in mind that in some cases, there are virtues that we might lose that if we aren't careful. And I think you're correct in pointing out the idea of face-to-face connectedness. There are times in which we can't be. I mean, you may have a relative who's living across the country and you just can't get together every week or so for a chat or whatever. But where you can, to see it as a virtue, uh, it may take some unlearning, but I think it's an important thing to do. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk. Thank you. This has been quite a blessing. I'm glad we had the chance to do this. Yeah, me too. God bless. Thanks.